About a year ago, I was driving home from Peterborough in the early evening and suddenly thought my eyesight was failing. I know this is becoming a theme for me. This wasn't the stepwise loss of vision in one eye that I had experienced with my recent retinal detachment. It was cloudiness of my whole visual field, both eyes. My dog was in the car with me and he might have picked up on my anxiety because he was standing up in the back seat panting. I wasn't sure what to do. I kept blinking, trying to get a clearer view, but it didn't make any difference. I was having trouble seeing the lane markers on the pavement and was feeling panicky and unsafe. I started to imagine that I had drifted over the center line and was going to end up in a head-on crash. I was on the verge of pulling off the road when I realized that it wasn't my eyes that were the problem. My panting dog had fogged up the windshield. A few seconds of the defroster on full blast, and I could see perfectly clearly again. Going from foggy to clear. It's a dramatic change. In the case of my driving episode, a very welcome change. I hadn't realized how clouded the window had been until I had the stark contrast of seeing the clear one. I could see the things my fears had caused me to imagine actually weren't true. I had not drifted across the center line. I was going to get safely home. In some ways, that isn't a bad metaphor for how the Bible reveals what God is like. It's an epic saga where, in the early chapters, our picture of the divine is pretty foggy. Sometimes God seems aloof, retributive, even vindictive, and frankly, occasionally petty. From time to time, the picture clears a bit, and we learn from the prophets that God desires mercy and not sacrifice, and that God cares for the marginalized and the oppressed. But things are still mostly foggy and inconsistent. Then, when Jesus comes, we see God clearly. As the Apostle John writes in the poetic prologue to his biography of Jesus, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, Jesus, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Once we have seen the clear picture, we have no interest in going back. I could have seen enough through my foggy windshield to keep myself on the road, but once the view was clear, I had no interest in going back. I wasn't tempted to turn off the defroster and bring the panting dog up to the front seat. If we grew up in a conservative church environment, we may not want to go back to what we saw as the angry and punishing God of the Old Testament. But even so, we may have absorbed some assumptions about God and God's expectations for us along the way that need to be reconsidered. Jesus began his public ministry by saying, I'm launching my kingdom, and so you need to rethink everything. In the light of Jesus, we need to rethink what God is like 
We need to retire distorted, inaccurate pictures of God we may have absorbed along the way. And we need to rethink what God has made us for, what God expects of us. In the story we will look at today, Jesus challenges his hearers to rethink how they relate to the law. In this case, specifically the law regarding Sabbath observance. Here's how Mark records the incident. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, Haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went to the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. This is a story with lots of contrasts. The first one I notice is the contrast between the relaxed freedom of the disciples and the rigid legalism of the Pharisees. The disciples were on a walk with Jesus, wandering through somebody's wheat field and helping themselves to a snack as they go. Have you ever done that in a wheat field? I used to love it as a kid. You'd strip the kernels off the stalk and then rub them hard between your hands to loosen the husks. Then blow lightly on them to remove the chaff and pop them in your mouth. They made a nice, chewy snack. A snack certainly made better by the context, the texture of the wheat stalks as you walked through the field and the warmth of the sun on a summer afternoon. Jesus goes on in our story to use an example where David and his men are starving and eat the sacred bread because they are desperate, but there's no reason to think that the disciples on this day are either famished or destitute. They were just enjoying a walk in the country with Jesus and using all five of their senses as they went. The Pharisees, in contrast, are out to prove that Jesus is wrong to discredit him. And so they're watching him like a hawk, and they determine that picking those few stalks of grain meant the disciples had done work on the Sabbath. They, of course, miss the point that the disciples are observing the Sabbath by literally spending time with God. But as others have pointed out, the religious leaders of the time had their noses so deeply stuck in their law books that they seemed to regularly miss the point. The most egregious examples of that happened during Holy Week. They have to figure out a way to get rid of the 30 pieces of silver that Judas had returned to them, since, you know, if you're going to pay a bribe to betray an innocent man, you wouldn't want that money to end up in a holy place. Or when they put pressure on Pilate to speed up the crucifixion, since, you know, if you're going to conspire to kill God, you wouldn't want to do that on the Sabbath. Jesus responds to them using an example from scriptures that they would have known well. 
to show that the needs of people can supersede the obligation to obey the letter of the law. When David was on the run, and he and his ragged band of followers are desperate, they eat the holy bread in the tabernacle that only priests should eat. Jesus tells the religious folks that they have it backwards. It wasn't that people were made so that they could be pigeonholed into the Sabbath. No, the the Sabbath was made for people to meet the needs of people. Let me try to draw an illustration for you. Imagine a circle in a huge, beautiful green field. Now, this is a magical circle because in the very center of it is God. The God who is, of course, infinitely larger than the circle itself. But stick with me. As Lucy says in the last Narnia book, In our world, too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. The circle in my imaginary world defines the permissive will of God. Everything within it is there to be enjoyed. Everything is permitted. So much to savor, to do, to find pleasure in. And as in the Garden of Eden, where almost everything was there to be enjoyed except for the fruit of one tree, so my circle defines both an inside and an outside space. The outside space is filled with the things that would be harmful. Harmful to me. Harmful to others. Harmful to how we relate to God. Have you got that picture fixed in your imagination? Okay then. If you were to think about the Pharisees from today's story, where would you find them in such a place? I'm guessing they would be right at the edge of the circle. They would recognize it's their favorite thing. It's the law. It's a fence that separates the right from the wrong, the good from the bad. They would be totally fixated on the fence. And of course, scrupulously careful to stay on the right side of it. They would be documenting and defining all of its details. They'd be curating it. They'd be protecting it and honoring it. And they'd be highly observant of the behaviors of others around it, taking note of anyone who ever crosses the line. And and all the while, they would be oblivious to the great beauty and bounty around them. The opportunities to connect with nature, with other people, with God. Well, actually the beauty wouldn't be all around them. It would be all behind them. You see, while they're laser focused on the line, the fence, the law, they're standing with their backs turned to God who is at the center of the circle and to all that God had provided for them within the circle. In my imaginary green field, the Pharisees had missed all the good things that God had provided for them, and they missed communion with God, with the true God, because they were so deeply preoccupied with keeping the law. They were fearful that failing to keep the law would separate them from God, when in fact it was their obsession with the law that had their backs turned to God. Moving away from my imaginary circle, in the real world account of Jesus that I just read to you, the Pharisees may have also missed nourishing relationships with others and connection with the natural world 
they just couldn't bring themselves to join the impromptu picnic in the wheat field. And sadly, they missed the most important thing God was providing for them, the most important person, Jesus. They were so fixated on the law, the written word of God that God had given them, that they missed the living word. For the best of them, they would have done it out of a desire to honor and please God by keeping the law. For the worst of them, the law would have become the means of judging and controlling others, and even a way of avoiding God. Because who needs to trust God when you have a rule for every occasion? But for all of them, their fixation with the rules and getting it right made them inflexible. It made them unable to see the truth when he came to live among them. You may think I'm being too hard on the Pharisees, but sadly I know those rationales and rationalizations all too well from personal experience. There was a season in my life when I welcomed the appeal of living under the law. At first glance, it may seem strange that someone would choose legalism if freedom was on offer. But for many, the security and smug sense of superiority that the law offers can seem irresistible. During what I described as the foggy time, centuries before Jesus, when people really didn't know what God was like, the law was quite helpful. I mean, life would be better if I didn't lie to my spouse, defraud my neighbor, and kill my co-worker, to use the example of just three of the Ten Commandments. And the first four of those Ten Commandments, about right worship of God, would have helped protect the Hebrew people from idolatry when they were surrounded on all sides by nations that practiced it. The law had a definite place, a good and useful place. But when Jesus comes, we see God clearly. We need to rethink how we relate to the law. Paul writes to his church in Galatia. He says, The law was our guardian. Another translation has our babysitter until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. That doesn't mean that Jesus abolishes the law. If anything, he makes it more stringent. In his Sermon on the Mount, when he points out the law that says you shall not murder, he says, murder? You shouldn't even be calling your brother an idiot. And when the law says to love your neighbor, Jesus says, yep, and love your enemy too. So Jesus isn't throwing the law out the window. He's taking it extremely seriously. But at the same time, he refuses to be held hostage by it. On a number of occasions, he seems to deliberately heal people on the Sabbath. Clearly, he thought freeing a person who had been, has been oppressed by illness was more important than the regulation against working on the Sabbath. When a mob brings a woman caught in adultery to Jesus and points out that the law says to stone her, Jesus extends mercy. When the religious folks see Jesus becoming ritually unclean by hanging out with outcasts, he points out that those are the very people he came to save. Jesus has clear priorities when he has to make those kinds of choices, 
choices between apparently contradictory instructions. And for Jesus, those choices are defined not by the legal minutiae of the religious lawyers, but by the two great commandments, the commandments to love God and love neighbor. But Jesus clearly doesn't like the way the religious folks were prioritizing. They would prioritize the letter of the law instead of its spirit. For example, he says they extended their practice of tithing right down to giving 10% of each of their garden herbs, mint and dill and cumin, but they neglected matters of justice and mercy. They prioritized lining their pockets over caring for people. I'm thinking here of when he challenges the religious leaders for telling people that the money they would have used to care for their elderly parents should be given to the temple. And they prioritize sins of commission rather than sins of omission. This is one of the points of the story of the Good Samaritan, where the priest and Levite pass by on the other side so that they wouldn't become ritually impure in order to avoid committing the sin of ritual uncleanness, they omit the command to love your neighbor. They liked focusing on sins of commission because they were easy to police. You can catch people doing them. In contrast, sins of omission are, offer, are often failures to love neighbor. They may be harder to pinpoint, but they undermine the flourishing of the community. I think Jesus would have loved it that Sabbath afternoon if the Pharisees had dropped their law books and joined the picnic. If they had let go of the fence and turned around. If they had run headlong toward the center of the circle in the company of a band of people living out the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. If they had put far more attention on Jesus and less on which side of a, of a line their feet fell on as they ran. They would have found grace, grace in a wheat field. <laughs>